the words that, that Lenny Kravitz uh, wrote in this song. He says, it's time for a love revolution. The truth will set you free and you will find that there is love that won't let you down. And it always holds down where your crown. This love will never leave you. This love will never let you go. It's time for a love revolution. It's time for a love revolution. Interesting words to come out of a Lenny Kravitz song. It's almost, they could literally be straight out of the Bible. That there is a love revolution, that, that it's time for a love revolution, that there is a love that will never let you down, that will always hold you up. What's interesting to me about that is, is that as I look at life and love, it seems almost impossible that he would actually be talking about human love because no matter how much we love somebody, no matter how much you love someone or I love someone, we will always let them down at some point, sooner or later, right? And so when he talks about a love that will not let you down, that will always hold you up, it seems to me he must be talking about, about God's love. And in this series, Lovelution, we're taking a close look at the first letter of John. The same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the life of Jesus. Later on in the Bible, we find three short letters. And this first one that we're talking about talks or looking at talks all about that. It talks about the love of God poured out into our lives and the revolution that it causes And a revolution is defined as a dramatic change in the way we see things or act. A revolution is a dramatic change in the way we see things, the way we think about things. And as a result, a dramatic change in the way we act and live out those things. So revolution is defined as God's love changing everything. God's love changing everything in you and in me. And last week we looked at God's love changing the way we view and handle our resources. And today we're going to look at how God's love redeems our past and completely changes our present and our future. And for that we're going to look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. But before we go there, and we will do this every Sunday. I think it's six weeks that we're looking at 1 John. But every week, we'll come back to the very beginning, the very th first three verses of 1 John. Because in, in those three verses, John sets the stage for everything else that he says. So if you have your Bibles, and I want to encourage you um, to bring your Bibles... On Sunday mornings, if you have one, if you don't, we have free Bibles just like this at, uh, at our um, info booth in the lobby. But let's go to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Okay, so what John writes, and it's a little bit repetitive, it seems like. He says a couple of things over and over again. Usually we repeat things. Why? 
because they're important. There's something important here that John wants you and I to understand, whoever reads this, before we really dive into this letter. He says, this, you've got to know this. And when he talks here about that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, they have heard, looked at, touched, and he calls it the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. What he's saying here is, I have seen Jesus, I have heard him, I've touched him, I was there And he is the word of life. He was real. What he's saying is, I've been there. I've done that. Didn't get the t-shirt, but I've, I've experienced him. He said, I was there with Jesus. What he's basically saying is, Jesus was real. And he was who he claimed he was. When he calls him the word of life. You've got to understand that, that the, the Bible is often called God's word, right? It's, it's the word. It's how God revealed himself to humanity. In God's word, God says, this is who I am. Now, Jesus is often called the living word because Jesus lived out that, that revelation of who God is. He came so that he could live and show us who God is. That's why Jesus is called the living word. And then he goes on to say, he, he appeared, he was here, we've seen him. And I can testify, I'm a witness to that he was real that he is the eternal life who was with the father and has appeared to us so what he's saying here is jesus was god he's eternal he was with god and he came to be with us god himself with us pouring his life and his life his love into our lives And, he, and then he says, I'm telling you this, that I have seen him, that I've heard him. And I'm telling you this so that you can have fellowship with me through our common fellowship with Jesus. He says, if you would only believe that that is true. And he says, and I'm telling you it's true. I've lived it. I was there. Believe that. Because by you believing that, we can have fellowship with each other through Jesus, and it will make our joy complete. That's the foundation of everything else that John writes in the rest of this letter that is all about receiving that, that truth, the truth that God so loves you and me that he did anything he could to restore that fellowship between you and him so that we can have fellowship with each other through our fellowship with him. And today we're going to go some, uh, some deep and difficult places. But I'm excited to go there because it's God's word and God's word is true. So let's dive into this passage together. First John chapter 1 verses 5 to chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And then the first verses of chapter 2. My dear children, I write, this to you, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
He is, at the, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let me pray one more time. Lord, this is your word. And I thank you for it. I pray, Father, that you, that you would lead us into the truth of your word. And what it means for us here and today. Lord, I thank you for your presence because you say that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there right with them. So we know you're here. And Lord, I just pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would speak into our hearts this morning. Pray that this morning you would pour out your love into our hearts that would cause a love illusion and dramatically change the way we think and act. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think in this passage, we will see that, that a love illusion in our own hearts will lead us to three realizations. Three realizations. And the first one is a realization of my own relationships. Let's have a look at the first few verses again. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, a love illusion in our hearts give us, gives us a gauge for where we're at in our relationships. First of all, it gives us a gauge of where we are at, of where I am at and where you are at in your relationship with God. If we have received Jesus, then my relationship with God has been restored. That's what John talked about earlier. If we, if we accept what Jesus has done and accept his forgiveness, we are restored back into a relationship with God. And it says here that God is light. God is, is identified here with light. And, and light in scripture represents truth and honesty and, and authenticity. Light represents virtue and, and moral conduct. Let's have a quick look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So it says if you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have accepted his forgiveness, if you have been restored in your relationship with God, then you should live in that light of God, in that light of truth and honesty and authenticity. And then it continues, says, in him, in God, there is no darkness at all. God is light, complete holiness and perfection. And in him, there can't be any darkness at all. Light and darkness can't mix. They don't go together. And then it says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we profess to love him and, and walk with him, if we pro profess that we, that we are submitted to him, the Bible calls it that we actually participate in his nature. So if we claim to be that, if we claim to be his children, walking with him, live submitted to him, that our lives are now in sync with him and with his spirit, 
then, then we can't be walking in darkness. The word that it says claim here, that we claim to have fellowship with him, indicates that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we actually have fellowship with him. And I think there's a couple of ways that that can happen in our lives. One is when we overemphasize God's love and grace over him being the light of truth. Sometimes we overemphasize his love and grace to the point where we excuse behavior and says, well, he loves me anyway and his grace covers whatever I do. So I can live my life in whatever way I want to because he's covering it. Not realizing that when we make those decisions, when we, and the Bible calls it walking in darkness rather than in God's light, when we, when we live life, when we make decisions that lead us away from the presence of God, that it affects our, our relationship with him. It affects our experience of our fellowship with him. It affects our experience of closeness with him and our receiving of his blessings. And sometimes when we overemphasize his grace and love over him being the light of truth that reveals and convicts, we can fool ourselves into actually having fellowship with him when we're not. And the second way that we can fool ourselves into having a relationship with him is that we, f- we think by doing what's right, by doing what's expected, by living a checklist where we do all the things we're taught that please God, that we can work our way into acceptance and fellowship with him. That's when we go to the point of, well, I don't do those things. I do this and I'm good and I give. And yet it's, it's all in a checklist. It's all rational. It's not out of submission and love to him. See, Jesus says, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. (laughs) See, what he's saying is walking in the light is not the result. Walking in darkness, sorry, not walking in darkness is not the result of following Jesus. Not walking in darkness is not the result of following Jesus. It's the other way around. I want to read you a quick page out of a great book I'm reading right now called The Prodigal God. Tim Keller says this, religion operates on the principle of I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The basic operating principle of God is I'm accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. Do you see the difference? It's not I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. It's God's accepted me. He loves me. He's forgiven me. Therefore, I walk in obedience to him. And it says, yet we walk in darkness. We claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness. We lie and do not live in the truth. It's very similar to what we looked at last week in terms of our resources, where he says, if you don't have pity on those in need, how could the love of God possibly be in you? And what he's saying here is, if you claim to be in fellowship with a holy, perfect God who cannot have fellowship with sin, sin being anything we do or say or decide that's outside of God's will for you. So if you claim to be his child and to walk with him and be in fellowship with him, yet you consistently, willfully make decisions that are contrary to that, then you're actually lying about your fellowship with him. What he's saying is you can't claim to live in the light. And yet you're cheating on your wife. 
you claim to live in God's light, and yet you lie on your tax return. You claim to have fellowship with God's light, and you make selfish decisions about your resources. You say you live in the fellowship of God's light, and yet we're, we're being inconsiderate with the people around us. We claim to live in the light, but we actually practically live in the dark. See what this is telling us that. Can you see me now? <laughs> now, in this big room, all this darkness, and then a little light can help. Can we turn the lights back on? I used to work at a Bible school in Sweden in a retreat center. And we used to take campers that came for a week or two into mines, old mines that they had in that area of Sweden. And you could go in there and they had, had caves that are lit up. And, and then you could go all the way to the end of this one arm, deep into this mine. And then I would always have them turn off the lights. And literally, I was hoping we'd get it darker in here, but literally we would be in that end of that mine and it would be so pitch black you you couldn't see your hand in front of you i mean nothing have you ever been in absolute complete darkness and so i would have them all huddle around they couldn't see anywhere they were going but i had them huddle around me and then i would light a match like i just did it wasn't as effective as as i had hoped (laughs) but it was amazing in the confines of that dark mine and cave that one match would just light up that space The point being is that darkness and light are mutually exclusive. Darkness and light cannot mix. They cannot be in the same place. And that's what he's telling us here spiritually. It's not possible for us to follow God and yet live in ways that are contrary to his expressed will for you and for me. You can't live in darkness and claim to be in fellowship with Jesus. See, having this love revolution in our hearts where God pours his love and his spirit into our lives gives us a gauge. He starts helping us realizing when we're not in his fellowship, when we are making decisions that lead us out outside of his will and away from his fellowship. And he also gives us a realization of our relationships with others. In verse 7, he goes on to say, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, the state of you and my fellowship with Jesus, with God, the, the health of my fellowship with him, always has an effect of, on my relationships with you and with each other. That began at the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve and they started first to step out of his will. Up until then, there was no shame. There was no hiding. There was honesty and openness. But as soon as sin entered that picture, not just did Adam and Eve's relationship with God dramatically change, but immediately their relationship with each other changed. Immediately shame came in and blaming and comparing and accusing and judging and hiding and pretending. The state and health of our relationship with God will always affect how we live fellowship with one another. Jesus came to reconcile you and me to the Father and also through that to reconcile us to each other. 
It's very interesting that, that believers, people who follow Jesus, who distance themselves from God through decisions, through actions that we take, almost always distance themselves from other believers also. I know if you have noticed that. I know that's what I, what I would do. If I know I'm walking in darkness, then I don't want to be around light. Then I don't want to be around people who would, who would expose that and confront that and challenge me in that. That's why our relationship with God always affects our relationships with each other. Living in the light of God's truth, though, sets us free to live in truth with each other. If we live in God's truth where he has exposed what needed exposing, where he has covered it with his grace and with his love and with his forgiveness, then it's out in the open. Then I don't need to hide that from you or from anybody else. Then I can live in authenticity and honesty without pretending. And it'll affect our relationship with each other. Also, in that relationship with each other, there is strength and there is protection. That's why he says that if we have fellowship with each other, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Our community with each other as people who together follow God and together seek to live in his light, we strengthen and we protect each other. Think of somebody sitting all by themselves in a pitch dark night around a little fire. That fire will, will comfort him, right? If you've ever been in that situation, I, I used to go to youth camps where we would camp over, you know, for a week and we would have night watch. And I would sit there by myself by the fire uh, waiting for attacks to happen. And, and just the fear of thinking, what's behind me? What's out there? But, but the fire comforted me some, that light. And then imagine an army of torchbearers around that. An army of others with, with torches, with lights around us and the, and the strength and protection that that brings. See, we're supposed to, in our relationships with each other, where we individually seek to live in God's light, are supposed to do that together where we can help each other and warn each other, challenge each other and say, hey, be careful here, Christian, be careful there. That, there's danger here. You, you could make a decision to walk outside of this light of God. Come back in and we protect and challenge and encourage one another. God gives us a realization of, of our fellowship with him and our relationships with each other. And a love illusion with myself, a love illusion where God pours his love and grace and forgiveness into my heart gives me a realization of where I am with him and where I am with the people around me. Secondly, he gives us a realization of our sin. No, that's not a popular word. But God talks about it very clearly. This is what it says here in verses 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. And I think one of our problems with the whole issue of sin is that we tend to minimize it. That we tend to minimize its, its importance, that we tend to minimize its impact on our lives. You know, how often do we hear people say, or how often do we say, says, oh, I'm a good person. I, I'm okay. I don't do this and that. I'm, I'm a good person at heart. 
I don't harm others. See, the, the, the problem is with, with sin, primarily the sin problem is not others and what we do to others. The problem is our rejection of God in it. It's, it's not what we do to others primarily. It's what, what our sin does to our relationship with God. And as long as we don't see that we have a problem, we can't be helped. As long as you and I think, I'm okay, I'm, I'm a good person, we can't be helped until we realize there is a problem. I saw a, a video recently of a, a guy, his name is Ray Comfort. He goes and does interviews with people and, and, and uh, surveys. And he went out somewhere in, in California on the, on the beach and talked to people and asked them about sin in their life. And they said, oh, I'm a good person. I'm good. I think, I think I'm good in the eyes of God. So he asked me, he says, so have you, have you ever stolen? And I have stolen. I have stolen. It makes me a thief. And you ask him, have you ever lied to anybody? Pretty much everywhere he says, yeah, I've lied. And let me just tell you, I have lied. I'm a liar. And he asked, have you ever looked at somebody other than your spouse and had impure thoughts? Most people said, yeah. And I'll confess, I have. He says, Jesus said, just looking at somebody lustfully is already adultery. So let me just tell you, as your pastor, I'm a lying thief and adulterer. That's a problem. (laughs) That's a problem. It's a problem that needs dealing with. See, we're not good enough. I am not good enough for God. I'm not good enough for him to accept me into fellowship with him. I'm not good enough and neither are you. And until we come to that realization that there is a problem, that there is a holy God whom we were made to be in relationship with, but there is an issue, a sin issue in our life that separates us from him. And there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that you can do in and of yourself to be good enough. It doesn't matter how little the sin might be or how big it might appear. We're not good enough. And by minimizing our sin, we minimize not just our sin, but we minimize what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. By saying, I'm a good person, I'm good enough, we say what Jesus did wasn't necessary. Let me just ask you, who in here has a son? I've got three. Would any of you be willing to give up that son or to see that son suffer for the good of any of us in here. Would you volunteer your son to suffer for my good or the person next to you? I often go to the hospital. I was just at the PICU last week where families here have their children, little children, just suffer. And I'm telling you, I have not seen deeper human pain than parents who see their children suffer. None of us would volunteer. I would not volunteer my son for you. Sorry. 
let alone volunteer my son's life for you? See, and that's what God thought necessary to fix your and my sin problem. The God of the universe saw it necessary to sacrifice his son to the point where he could not be in that presence anymore. Where Jesus says, God, why have you forsaken me? Because he couldn't stand it. And we say, I don't need that. I'm good enough. And God says, no, you're not. And until we come to that realization and conviction, we cannot be helped. And as long as you and I claim to live in fellowship with him, but have no conviction of walking in darkness, the question is, has that revolution ever really taken place in our lives? Because he says, if you have really received my love, my grace, and my forgiveness, then when you're walking in darkness, at least there'll be conflict. You'll be conflicted. You'll be convicted and have a choice to, to confess and come back. If we don't live in that conflict, if we claim to have fellowship with him, but feel the freedom to consistently walk outside of his expressed will, then we probably have never really received his love and forgiveness. Because he says you cannot claim to live in the light, but be happy living in darkness. Only, only that realization of a deep need for forgiveness. Only confession that comes out of that conviction. And only the receiving of the gift that God wants to give you and me will lead to us, you and me, not only being good enough for God, but being perfect in his eyes. Where it is done, where it is forgiven, and we're set free from working for it and working for his approval. You know what I would love for you and I to do right now? Actually, I'm going to ask you to do this. I hope you got a little note card, a little index card when you came in. I would love for you to just sit for a couple of minutes and reflect and ask God to convict you, no matter where you are right now, whether you've ever accepted God's forgiveness or whether you've been walking with him for a long time, we all make decisions that step outside of the will of God. Would you just ask him and ask him to convict you right now? Maybe he, he already has while I was speaking, of things where you have stepped out of God's will, where you have not allowed him to convict yourself, and where you have not confessed that to him yet. Would you write those things down? Take a couple of minutes to say, God, where, where have I stepped out of your will? Just, just take a couple of minutes and write those down, would you? Love illusion with God gives us a clearer realization of our fellowship with him and with each other. And it leads us to a realization of the sin in our life. But I'm telling you, I am so glad and thankful that John didn't stop writing here. 
I am so thankful that God doesn't stop at convicting us of the things that separate us from him. But that John kept writing, and I want to repeat verse 9 and then go into chapter 2. Verse 9, John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then in chapter 2, it says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He says, my dear children, it's a term of of affection, of of love for them. And he, he says, I'm not writing to you out of judgment. I'm writing to you out of a care for you, out of a concern for you to live close to God, to live in his light. He says there is forgiveness and there is freedom. And that's the third realization that we can come to when we have a love illusion in our own hearts. When we allow God to pour his love and grace into our hearts. It's the realization of our freedom. There is freedom. You see, nobody, I don't think anybody actually likes to live in darkness. I mean, darkness is oppressive. It's, it's not fun to be around darkness unless we have a lot to hide. <laughs> Even physically, we need light to live. Life cannot be sustained without light. And spiritually, we need light to live spiritually. That's why God says he is the light and we need to walk in the light. And I think we often avoid that light. I know I sometimes avoid that light because out of fear of what will be revealed. Because naturally light reveals what's hidden in the darkness. And we fear coming into that light because we fear what? We fear punishment and rejection. I think that's what often keeps us from actually stepping back into God's light. It's shame, guilt, and the fear of consequences and fear of rejection by him and others. And that is where the message of the Bible is so, so beautiful. Because the second we choose to step into God's light, and yes, what's hidden will be exposed. But the second we do that, our fear of punishment and rejection will be overcome by God's grace and love and forgiveness. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Says this. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. See, that happens the second we overcome that fear of guilt and shame and punishment and step into God's light. That second, our sin is covered by his grace and forgiveness. And there is freedom from that guilt and shame and freedom from hiding and pretending. 
freedom to be set free the, to be the person that God created you to be and freedom to step into the relationship with him that he created you for. Let me read you two other verses. One in Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14. It says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he, gave all, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by the nailing it to the cross. In Romans 8, verses 33 to 34, says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who is, it that, who is it that condemns Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? See, when we step into God's light, it is brought into the open, it is forgiven by God's grace, there's nothing that can come against it. There's no more con- condemnation, no more accusation. Then it says here in, in, in the John passage that Jesus is our advocate. Our advocate, that means he is for us. He's our, our lawyer, our counsel. An advocate is a counsel for the defense of those who need help. He intercedes on behalf of those who can't intercede on their own behalf. That's who Jesus then becomes for you and for me. He's not the accuser that we fear he might be. He's our defender. MacArthur, in his commentary on this, put it really, really well. He says, Jesus, as the advocate, accepts as clients only those who confess their guilt and their desperate need to receive him as Savior and Lord. And he becomes for them the incomparable intercessor who always gains acquittal for those who trust in him. Isn't that a cool picture? He's your and my advocate, my lawyer on my side. And lawyers try to get people off, right? He only takes as clients those who actually confess to be guilty. Because he's not just our advocate, he's also our substitute. He's also the one who's taken your place and my place. In Romans, it's called that he satisfied God's justice. He satisfied God's sense of justice for you and for me. He took the punishment that I deserved and that you deserved. You know what they would do in those times back then, during Bible times, with somebody who was convicted of a crime? They would write it on a piece of paper, whatever they had. They would write the charges that they were found guilty of. That's why on the cross it was nailed, Jesus, King of the Jews, because they said he claimed to be Messiah, which he was. But what they would do is they would take that charge and nail it to the inside of the cell door to remind the inmate every day, every minute of why they're in there, what they're guilty of. But when they had paid the price for their crime, when they had done their time, that paper would be taken and they would stamp or write canceled on it. And they would get to take that with them into freedom. And whenever they were accused, now wait a second, weren't you found guilty of this or that? And he said, it's canceled. It's been paid for. The beauty of the gospel is that you and I don't have to live looking at those charges. 
beauty is that unlike those times, we don't have to go pay the price for that. Jesus did. Your sheet, once you have come to him with the realization that you need him, with the conviction of sin in your life, where you've confessed and received his forgiveness, anything that could be on that paper, anything that's ever been on that paper, anything that will ever possibly be written on that, is canceled. And you're free to live. That's why we set up a little court scene here. See, what this is telling us that Jesus is our advocate. There, see, there is an accuser over here. Picture God as the judge there. There's an accuser here who says, that guy, really? That guy's a cheater. That guy's cheated on his wife. He doesn't deserve you. And God will say, you're right. <laughs> you're right, he doesn't. And Jesus is over here and said, wait a second. <laughs> I've paid for that. I've dealt with that. It's, it's canceled. And God will say, all right, canceled. You're free to go. Go and live. And then, well, but she, she's a liar. She cheated on her taxes. Really? You cheated on your taxes? That's unacceptable. I can't accept you. And Jesus says, no, wait, I've paid for that too. I suffered for that. See, that accuser sometimes is our own conscience. Sometimes it's, it's the enemy that's there. But Jesus is your advocate. And if you've accepted him, it's canceled. And we're free to go, free to live with him and in him. I want to ask the band to come up as we close. And I want to let you know, I don't know where you're at right now spiritually. I don't know how you came here this morning, what you came with, or I have no idea where most of you stand in your relationship with God. I don't know if, if you've ever been convicted of sin in your life, ever been convicted of that separation between you and God. I don't know if you've ever known that there can be freedom from that guilt, that there can be freedom and forgiveness, that that, that that gap between you and God can be bridged, that you can be restored into your creation designed to be in close fellowship with God. If you've never known that, never realized that, but you're convicted this morning, then today, today can be the day where that can be canceled. Today can be the day where you can go from guilty to free, to being set free, to come out of hiding and pretending, out of guilt and shame and into the freedom that God wants you to have an experience with him. And then there's, there's those of us who, who have accepted Jesus, who have been in fellowship with him, but we, 
We do make decisions. We do make decisions that, that lead us out of the will of God, that, that put distance in our relationship between him and, and us, where maybe we're, we've, we've lived for a while where we just don't sense his presence anymore, and, and out of the shame and guilt we fear coming back to him because he's going to expose it. But I just want to remind you of the grace and love that gets poured into your life the moment we are willing to, to confess and allow his light to expose what needs to be exposed and what needs to be forgiven. So I want to encourage you today, whether this is your, your first time or whether you just need to bring things before God to, to restore closeness in your relationship with him, that we're going to celebrate what's called the Lord's Supper and uh, communion. Something that Jesus told us to do, he, gave, he told his disciples on his last night that they and we should continue to do this to, to remember what he has done. And what he has done is that he was willing to suffer, to have his body broken for you and for me. He was willing to, to give his life, to shed his blood so that your penalty and mine is paid for. So that we can say, no, he's got my back. So that God can say, canceled. And so we've got some canceled stamps here on each of these tables. And I want to encourage you as we go into worship and, and sing, we can respond to God's offer of forgiveness and love, his offer of a love illusion in your heart and mine. That if you have accepted his forgiveness... And maybe for the first time this morning, if you have decided to accept his love, his sacrifice, and his grace into your life, that you come forward, that you take that bread that symbolizes Jesus' body that was broken for you and for me, that you dip it into the, the juice that, that symbolizes his blood, and that we remember what he's done for us, that we remember by accepting what he has done, our debt is canceled. And just bring your paper, take the communion, and stamp your paper that you wrote, wrote down whatever God convicted you of. And know that if you've accepted him, if you've received that revolution, you're free. Free to go to live in fellowship with him and in his light.